So should we start by talking about Rachel Riley? Um, I've just written down Rachel Riley. Congratulations. I think we should stop there because otherwise she'll sue us. Yeah, I was well. I'm, I'm just saying, Rachel Riley. Congratulations. If if you have anything else to add, anyone? If anyone has anything to say about Rachel Riley? No. Okay. Good. Well, I'm glad that we've got through that discussion. I'd just like to remind people that she um, thought I was a labour councillor once. <laughs> so what? what? <laughs> she tweeted that I was a labour councillor. I've never been a labour councillor, so she doesn't really fact check. I think I can whoa, say whoa, that. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Sometimes she fact checks. I have to. I believe. Yeah, you're right. It was just in, like in a your opinion, off, like, she doesn't fact check. I love. I love living in a country where we can openly speak about people. That's a nice, healthy debate. Yeah, she's free speech. I think she's a free speech advocate, isn't she? Definitely. She, she liked the dog doing the Nazi salute. Did she? Do you not I'm know really this? I don't know. I don't know. Did, did she like it? Yeah, she, she, she did. She's speaking in support of the dog doing Nazi salute. Yeah. This 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 channel does make has no claims. Makes no claims about Rachel Riley whether she likes something or doesn't like anything. We're just saying congratulations to her for getting uh, MBE. Well done. What is MBE stand for? Member of the British Empire. <laughs> Which no longer exists. <laughs> and was quite racist. But but not Rachel Riley, she isn't. Just the British Empire was back in the day. <laughs> I forgot we were going to do introductions, weren't we? <laughs> I almost got away with it, but then I, I felt bad because I did say we'd do an introduction. So here, like, very forced. My name is Daniel. My name's Heather. And my name's Claudia. Great. There, now now we've done... And this is... Is complaints. complaints on a podcast. No one did that with me. <laughs> no one did it with me. <laughs> Left him alone now. in the wilderness. We did it. We yeah. did the introduction. Great. All right. Right. On. Yes. <laughs> All right. Today we're going to talk about conspiracies. We're talking about uh, right, not right wing conspiracies, not left wing conspiracies, but centrist conspiracies. Right. That's the idea. Yeah. And the reason we're going to do this is because, well, basically no one ever talks about them for the most part, and they're everywhere. They're rife. And the other reason is because we really want to talk about this podcast that came out last year, the Trojan Horse Affair. And I hadn't heard it before, but I listened to it the other week. Heather, when did you listen to it? Um, it came out? A couple of weeks after it came out, I think. Uh, and Claudia, have you listened to it? Yeah, I listened to it when it first came out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it totally passed me by, but it's an amazing uh, podcast. So we thought we'd start off with um, a little TikTok video, which went all over the internet. Um, on why conspiracy theories typically end in anti-Semitism in 60 seconds by a woman called Abby Richards. This is why conspiracy theories always end in anti-Semitism in 60 seconds. Ish. Conspiracy theories are tools for our brains to make sense of the world. Throughout history, they've allowed us to look at problems like wars, famines, disease, and blame an outside group. For hundreds of years in Christian Europe, Jews were often the subject of conspiracy theories because they were an outgroup. It's a lot easier for us to blame our problems on groups that we perceive as other. Then in 1903, a fake document pretending to be the notes from a meeting of Jews plotting world domination is published. It's called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it comes out right at the start of a bunch of anti-Jewish pogroms in the Russian Empire. 
This is when we see a shift in conspiracy theories. They go from this group is responsible for an XYZ event to this group is controlling the entire world and is responsible for all events. And this work of fiction goes mainstream. The um, villains of World War II incorporated the protocols into school curriculums and Henry Ford distributed like hundreds of thousands of copies across the US. So the protocols become the structure upon which any conspiracy theory about a small group of people controlling the world is based. Illuminati, lizard people, deep state, it doesn't really matter which conspiracy we're talking about because they're all built on the same hateful blueprint. Yeah, so we added that video because basically it sort of has the same sort of structure as the conspiracy we're going to go into, but it says that all conspiracies lead back to anti-Semitism, except this one, which is why it's not a conspiracy, right? But yeah, but it's really weird when she does Illuminati lizard people and deep state because yeah believing that there's some kind of permanent government that maybe murdered jfk or um set up stay behind organizations across europe after second world war that's exactly the same as believing in lizard people right this is just insane i mean it's just really kind of um this is the problem with anti-conspiracy theory stuff because it stops us like it puts the truth and people who want to find out what's going on in the world on a par with people who who believe fantasies well yeah it allows allows basically the establishment to control the narrative right because if they don't release the information if it's just done through either sort of investigative journalism or just speculation because the the official narrative makes no sense then it's a conspiracy theory it's no can't possibly be true and then maybe later on the cia released some documents that show oh maybe that bit was true but no more of it's true only the bit that we release yes. yeah so they can, can totally control how far the narrative goes but yeah as i say i quite like it also because they talk about the, the protocols of zionism right protocols of, zionism? Protocols of the old protocols of the elders of zion, the elders yeah. of zion. i like yeah the elders because mm. they know what yes got the authority right yeah there's like this weird sort of book comes out of nowhere no one cares where it comes from but once they've got it it's like oh this is gold and now we can like build a conspiracy off this. And that's exactly what happens in the Trojan horse affair. So I looked up Abby Richards and what she's up to and she came up with a conspiracy pyramid. So that's her kind of thing. So she organizes conspiracies into things that are harmless and kind of ridiculous. And then she kind of works her way up. And I kind of liked what she was doing until she got kind of to the top of the pyramid because she got to a point of the pyramid which she labelled the rejection of authority section of the pyramid. And in the way she was describing it, the rejection of authority made something sound more crazy or implausible in her pyramid. And that was just really interesting to me, the wording rejection of authority, because surely it depends who the authority is and how trustworthy that authority is. Um, I mean, I was thinking, like, for example, like when we look at like the Iraq war, for example, the idea of a rejection of authority. Well, at the time, the authority was like Tony Blair and we weren't told the truth about that. So by that logic that she goes by, that, that makes things that we now know to be true, it makes them completely ludicrous. It basically means you have to be deferential to authority. And to me, that's where her, where her theory falls apart. But that, that's because her theory is essentially to shore up authority, right? That's its purpose. Um, so she is a fellow, a summer fellow or something for the Rand Corporation, who are a military industrial complex think tank. Um, and, and I mean, it's very hard to get any information on the Rand Corporation. I tried Googling them. They seem to have bought Google because every time you try and Google anything about the Rand Corporation, the first 20 or 30 references are just to Rand stuff. 
um, so they control their own narrative. But the other thing about Tony Blair is that, of course, we went to war in Iraq based on a centrist conspiracy theory that there were weapons of mass destruction. Um, Tony Blair pushed the conspiracy theory. So respect for authority would have been listening to that conspiracy theory. So none of that makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, sorry, go on. I was going to say, and beyond rejection of authority, that's when there's there's one tier above in her pyramid. And it's the anti-Semitic point of no return. And everything above it, uh, she states everything above that is inherently anti-Semitic and everything connects. And a lot of the things do make sense and are anti-Semitic. Like, you know, a lot of like Pizzagate, QAnon, they do all connect to the protocols of the elders of Zion. Yeah. But it doesn't make complete sense because it's kind of her basis for this is that there, if you believe that there is an elite group of people um, who are controlling things or influencing, influencing things at the top, that makes it inherently anti-Semitic. But that implies that you think that that group of people are Jews. So what happens if you're anti-imperialist, if you're anti-capitalist and you do believe there's a group of elites that have a lot of power and are protecting their own interests? You know, her logic doesn't make sense because apparently everything's anti-Semitic if you question the idea there's elites. So it puts the left in a really bad situation. Yeah. It also bleeds into this idea that if you have a, you have a centrist conspiracy, like conspiracy theory at the time, that there were no weapons of mass destruction, and that the reason that they were going into Iraq were for some nefarious, you know, economic reasons, or possibly, you know, military control of the area and stuff, all of that kind of thing. If you were saying that at the time, because that wasn't the centrist position, it was a conspiracy theory, and it can be dismissed. When it comes out that that was partly true, if not entirely true, that's because it's come out through the centrist like um, media scape. So there's like, oh, well, we investigated later and we found this to be the case. Almost as if it's a separate thing that happened. There were some people at the time on the left who thought that, but they were idiots and conspiracy theorists. We later did find that out to be the case, but that's just a coincidence. You know, they, they, you know that's yeah. just how it goes. And I mean, similar here, although I, we're going to go into talking about the Trojan horse fair now. That is still something that very much the initial conspiracy theory line is still held very strongly by the media in this country. You can see it by the reaction to the podcast when it came out. So uh, to, to an American podcast um, maker, uh, what's his name? Brian Reed. Yeah, it's a New York Times podcast. New York Times, yeah. yeah. So he, very much outside of the whole thing was kind of brought in by someone very much at the center of it, someone who lived in the community, uh, a British guy, Saeed. Um, what's his name? Hamas Saeed? Is he from Birmingham? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he lived in the area. Um, and he had a personal interest in it uh, because it was his local area and also because he's a Muslim. And the entire sort of big Trojan horse fair is, is about a conspiracy of Islamism. Yeah. He's also... Um was doing a master's in investigative journalism. He was formerly a doctor. He decided to change careers. And this was a story he wanted to investigate. So it kind of worked from that point of view. So this is his one and only piece of investigative journalism, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so it's the first thing he's ever done and didn't really know what he was doing, but he knew he was onto something because it is a, it's a crazy story. And then he gets this American guy in who has no idea about the story and therefore is more open. It's like it's like if someone you met, met someone who'd never heard of the invasion of Iraq or something, or, you know, in 2003, they'd never heard of Iraq 
or Britain or Tony Blair, and you just gave them like the basic facts of what was happening. And they might be like, oh, that sounds quite suspicious. But of course, most people, you're kind of wrapped up in uh, in the media culture that you live in, right? It's very hard to escape it. And that's something that Brian Reed, the American, talks about a lot, is the fact that when you speak to people, they, you already have a narrative. And that narrative is then kind of fed and, and kept healthy by constant... Um, like pieces of sort of official narrative, whether it's from the newspapers or from the government or from the local council, everywhere you look, people are, are sort of enforcing this narrative. And that's where that's why a centrist conspiracy theory never looks like one. It looks much more legitimized. And it's and what it looks like is if you question that as a conspiracy theory, you are the conspiracy yes. theorist for questioning their conspiracy theory. It's exactly like state governments can't do terrorism even when they employ terrorist tactics because they're states. So when a state pushes a conspiracy theory, it's not a conspiracy theory. Um, when it's other actors who are using terror tactics or who are doing what we call conspiracy theories, then then they are judged in that way. So it's a way of dismissing power from um, power from outside and shoring up establishment power. These the language that we use, the ways we label people, and this is one of the reasons why um, we are an unashamedly pro conspiracy theory podcast. In contrast to a lot of the British left who really want to cement a, a position in relation to official knowledge and official power um, and legitimacy. Apart from about Rachel Riley, who we believe everything she says and agree 100% with all of her views, whatever they might be. Anyway, let's get on to the Trojan Horse Affair. Uh, I've written a little bit just to explain what exactly happened. So basically, Birmingham City Council received an anonymous letter in 2013 that explained in great detail a plot that Islamist extremists were infiltrating the Birmingham school system in an attempt to radicalize pupils. I'm not even sure if that last part is true. I think that's sort of just inferred, really. But they were basically, there was an Islamist, 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 Islamist plot yes. to take over the culture of Birmingham schools, which you would imagine means that they were going to sort of indoctrinate the, the students, right? Yes. Um, have you ever seen the film The Faculty? Oh, yeah. I love that film. Were they yeah. all drinking the water all the time? Right. And yeah. I was like, it's such a ridiculous idea. So for this a is thought. a film where aliens take over the, the teachers in a school. Yeah, because it's like, yeah. if you're an alien, like, you know, if, if you're Islamist extremist, like, what are you can do? Like, you can't, if you want to take over culture, you would imagine you'd infiltrate, infiltrate the um, Secret Service, the government, the military. No, no, like in the faculty, some aliens come down and they take over like a sort of suburban school in <laughs> yeah. middle America. Yeah, yeah. That's where you start the attack from. And it's basically the same thing, right? With the Trojan Horse Fair. It's like, oh, you're going to take over the school system of Birmingham. Oh, God, that's scary. Anyway, so that, but, but apparently that was the uh, the plan. Uh, well, it's all part of a global agenda. So we have to see the Birmingham. If you buy into this. <laughs> it's a top down, down top. Conspiracy theory. This is part of a global Islamist agenda. Which is is you know people are just doing grassroots work like they're becoming governors in Birmingham schools. I presume they're becoming. I don't know what else they're doing. Of course, well, like, if, if, if a Muslim gets a job, it just don't know. It's fifty exactly. fifty whether <laughs> whether Islamist um, conspiracy, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, what happens is um, so the conspiracy. So the letter talks about this conspiracy and it revolves around this guy called Taia Alam who was at the time chairman of Parkview Trust, which was a, a trust which ran three... Chairman, 
No, I'm going to keep it in. There's going to be no editing in this video. He was he was the chair of a Parkview Trust, uh, which ran three schools in Birmingham area. Um, where, 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 where? I've lost my trail of thought now. You've ruined the podcast, but you know for a noble cause, so it's fine. Uh, which the letter? All right. So the letter claimed. So anyway, the letter the letter was based around this guy Tai Alam um, Alam, and they the letter claims that he was the head of this like conspiracy. At the time, he was chair of Parkview Trust, which ran three schools in Birmingham, and he was and he was overseeing. What was interesting was he was overseeing a sort of Islamification, but not Islamism. It was like he what the, the schools were changing their culture to be more reflective of the student body, which was ninety odd percent. It's like ninety seven percent of the schools Muslim, right? So those Muslim students at the school schools in Britain tend to have a religious aspect whether you like it or not, and you, you sing prayers and you do all this kind of thing. And so what he had done is he'd come in and he tried to sort of change the way that the school works so that it was more accepting or more welcoming to Muslim students. The results of that had been that the schools had started to get much better test results and like yes. skyrocketed up in the Ofsted reports. And the reason that he was running three schools at the time was because the local council had actually asked him to do what he'd done at one school at others because it had worked so well and it was basically all of the things that he was doing was getting praised not only by the local council but also by Ofsted and it, w- it was seen as a real success in integration. Yeah I think the national government um, the Department for Education actually asked them to set up to take charge of more schools yeah. Uh, but then this letter comes out and it's sent to Birmingham Council and it says What's happening is that this guy and some other people around him are infiltrating schools, even though he's being invited for having such results. And everything he's doing there is actually sort of, I don't know, changing the culture of the school to make it extreme, (laughs) extreme culture. To lead people into terrorism is the implication. Yeah. Yeah. And so suddenly all of the exact same things that he was doing, which was obviously publicly known and, and widely praised, were then seen through the lens of being part of this conspiracy This to, uh, yeah, to change Britain's Britain's culture to bring in some sort of like Islamic state in Britain, and so suddenly the exact same things that he was once praised for, he was now being condemned for, not only by his own council but by the government and mo- and most importantly probably by the media. There was a massive media storm around uh, Bir- th- this story and around Birmingham at the time, and there was there's a great um, bit of, of footage on YouTube of uh, John Snow down at a school talking to uh, parents um and uh, basically like because there basically there was no evidence of this so there was a huge media storm around it and then there was an investigation and there was no evidence of any of this happening and so the media then just had to sort of like try and find anything at all that they could go off that was that was a problem and so they're sort of desperately hanging around schools like asking oh you went on a school trip to Saudi Arabia why why did you do that and it's like, is that a national news story? You know, it, it's amazing how once it got going, once it was in momentum that this was a problem, everyone was on board. The media, the government, it was Michael Gove at the time was education secretary, uh, trying to push that this was a big problem. And when there were, it was the, eventually revealed there was no evidence, but that didn't stop them. Then it just continued on its own momentum and they just kept digging. And um, I don't want to say they made stuff up, but they just, whatever they did find, they would just say, oh, that that's the evidence. Whatever it is, that'll do. So we're talking about reports and how reports sustain a narrative. 
Um, and there were multiple reports in this case. So I can't remember all of them. I'll probably miss some. But there was a, a local council report. There was a report by a House of Commons committee. Um, there was a report by Ofsted, who are the inspection um, organisation in the UK. And there was um, a report the government commissioned. And they got someone from counterterrorism to head up that report, which obviously carries huge associations. And we were also talking about how this is really similar to what happened with um, anti-Semitism Labour Party. We just had report after report after report. And the reports become the story. And the reports have to find something. And even when what they find is incredibly weak or non-existent, um, as in the House of Commons case in, in both the Trojan Horse and um, Labour anti-Semitism, the House of Commons committee report was, there is nothing to see here. Um, even that becomes a story and it's like this this House of Commons report failed because we've got <laughs> this and, and it's it's you should never do reports on things that are lies I think that's what you have to say right and that's the interesting thing right so the initial this letter that came out now it was initially sent to Birmingham Council and it was dismissed immediately the people within the council thought it was a hoax from the get-go and it was actually widely circulated for a while in Birmingham sort of with council officials with, with nobody taking it seriously and nothing happening about it um there's good evidence to suggest that they even knew who had written it although no one has ever claimed to know that um but either way this letter it didn't look like it was based on anything it was assumed to be a hoax immediately and yet it prevailed it it, it hung around and we can't really get into the details of that. It's very, very complex. Listen to the podcast if you want to listen to exactly like how it sort of managed to get its way to Michael Gove. And then Michael Gove came to Birmingham. And then suddenly the letter had uh, was really important and uh, you couldn't be questioned. It's a great podcast. Listen to that. And it gives you because it's very kind of, yeah, intricate kind of web of. And every of time things. someone listens to that podcast, a little bit of what remains of Michael Gove's very pathetic soul dies. So it's a good thing to do. It's like, like there used to be a game online, which was called, I think it was called Hit Michael Gove. Did you ever play that? I've <laughs> never played Hit Michael Gove. No, I can't say I have. It's just a picture of Michael Gove. And then you would press on the screen and it would something you'd whack. I think it was called Whack Michael Gove. And he'd get whacked on the head and he'd say, ow, that hurt. <laughs> and, and the game would tell you how many people were hitting, playing at the same time. Playing at the same time, how many hits. You know. Yeah, it was it was fun for teachers at the time when he was education secretary. Oh, God. So yeah, it's like doing that. What listen to that podcast is like playing. It's it's the less violent version. Uh, and, and the podcast less, is more fun, more, more interesting. Yeah, than it, game. it's better than violence. Yeah, <laughs> it's far <laughs> better. That game was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I haven't played it, but you haven't sold it to me, to be honest. Um, yeah. Anyway, so but what we do want to talk about is why. So the in the in why the letter was why the less letter persisted, why it was taken seriously, because they do ask that in the podcast, but they never really come up with any reasons um, how it became this big deal. Not how, but why? Why? Like because it was seen as a hoax, and it obviously was a big furora for everyone involved it was a big faff they had to do all of these as you say all these investigations all these reports it was a big scandal for the government like you would imagine the easiest thing and the, the best thing to do would just say oh this is a, this is nonsense and dismiss it so why didn't they and i think that's really how, how it, that gets into it being a kind of centrist conspiracy theory right 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I was, I was doing some research on the the elders of the protocols of. Wait, what's? Oh my gosh, I can't think of it. Protocols of the elders of Zion. The protocols of the elders of Zion. So I was that doing at the same time. If only we could do that with complete. <laughs> I'm Daniel. I'm Heather. I'm Claudia. Welcome to the protocols, the protocols of the elders, elders of Zion. Don't put that in. You'll get you'll, like expelled from life parties. Yeah, we the the protocols of the elders of Zion or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We just want to say, as a collective, congratulations to Rachel Riley. Oh God. Okay. Shall I re-say it? Please. Okay. Okay, um, so I've been researching the protocols of the elders of Zion because I was trying to look at how much this resembles basically what happened then. Because it, it both they both start with something which is obviously a hoax, you know. So obviously the protocols started with these. There's supposed to be minutes that were left after a meeting of Jewish elders that they were trying to dominate the world and enslave everybody. And it's the same thing. This is a letter in a school, and it's the exact same ridiculously vague plan. Like, it's just, it's shady enough. It's, it's really evil, though, the way it's constructed, because you can't really fight against it, because people who believe it anyway, because they don't like Muslims, or who would believe the other one because they don't like Jews, they would actually think that the lack of evidence being found, it backs them up, because then they think, oh, yeah, because that's how shady they are. That's how deep this goes, because there's no evidence. Which is really interesting to me, because it was, it was so early on, wasn't it, with them... Um, with the Trojan horse situation, that it was found to be a hoax. And it was found to be a hoax by multiple people. Yes. And it's interesting, you're right, because it's it's not a full letter. So like the, the I think the first page of the letter is missing, or maybe more than one page, it's unclear, and the end of the letter is missing, so it's unsigned. So it has this kind of, it's trying to conjure up this idea of a found document, which is also what the Protocols of the Elder Design is trying to conjure up. It's trying to conjure up that authenticity of something that's going on without us knowing. Um, and I think what what's interesting for me about this is that what the people, the establishment people who take this as true, they don't take the letter as true, but take um, the idea of the Islamization of schools as true, um, do is accuse us of a conspiracy theory, accuse us of um, being on the side, uh, uh, being the useful idiots on the left, and being on the side of this Islamization, of using Islamophobia to scare people into silence on this really important issue and the way that our society is being changed and the way that global terrorism is spreading. So it feels like a battle of an insider conspiracy, a centrist conspiracy versus um, where they label us as conspiracy theories and us on the left labeling them conspiracy theories. And it's about where the power is in that for me, that's really interesting. So what, why do you think that's useful for, well, Gove and the Tory government, but more than that, the media around them and and the Labour government as well, and the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, Gove hates Muslims. I think this yeah, is very, yeah, very clear, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, obviously our culture is extremely Islamophobic. I can't talk. Obviously our culture is extremely Islamophobic, but Gove really takes it to another level. Um, and it's, you know, and, and what's that Tory who spoke about Islamophobia? Well, you're gonna have to uh, nail it down a bit more. Uh, that. That Baroness Varsi. Oh yeah, Varsi. Yeah, Baroness Varsi mm-hmm. has said this about him and how fanatical he is, and so it certainly hit for him and was useful for him in pushing that agenda. But just more widely, we've had a 
um, an Islamophobic foreign policy agenda, at least since 2001, and arguably for much, much longer before that, but very much intensified since since 9-11. Yeah, because when, when did they actually record this investigation? I mean, it was obviously the letter came out in 2013. They're doing it a few years later. Was it 2016 or was it even... Because they're talking about um, no-go zones, and that brought me back to like the culture at the time, particularly... It was more coming off the back of 9-11 and the war in Iraq and then sort of feeding through to, I guess, 2013, 2014, before Brexit became everything and before Trump became everything. And, and there was a real shift in um, the dialogue in politics. Yeah, there was this big like this anti-Muslim, like this big push. American media particularly would say there was no go zones in Britain. I don't remember that. Like, I think maybe uh, I'd like to say maybe Peckham or something like just like. Quite just random parts of like these big parts of Birmingham, big parts of Birmingham, yeah. yeah. Maybe Edmonton in London, but like just just basically like like they would just say that these had become like white people couldn't go there. It was too scary. Like the police wouldn't go there. It was it was bad. It's now parts of Sweden apparently is the new far right American far right have labelled parts of Sweden no go zones um, because and then you've got I don't know, I just might have you've got far right government in Sweden, right? You've I mean you've got so all of this is fueling the far right. Yeah, I, d- I don't know how how you can imagine like the police just not being able to go. I don't know, just giving up on an area. But it was it was widely believed, and and Brian Reed kind of mentions it. And I totally forgotten about that culture that was around, and it's still there, I guess, in in the, in our rhetoric around sort of foreign policy and things. But at the time, it was the it was part of the whole terrorist narrative, right? It was part of um, prevent um it was part of like why we were putting so much money into our military and also into the surveillance here at home and it pushed through all of that kind of stuff and so i think that's one of the it because all of that was already happening at the time something like this is just a really convenient way i don't know what was happening else in 2013 i'm sure there's loads of scandals and many of them involving gove and and this is the sort of thing where you can sort of reclaim a narrative that 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 combines a lot of the sort of policy areas that you want to change or or are sort of involved and committed to, and so you latch on to little things like this, and then you can say, okay, well here's something, and let's have a big media storm about this, and that will reinforce everything we've been doing for the last ten years, and then you know hopefully something else will come along, and you kind of go from thing from one thing to the next, and yeah, I, I really want obviously we're going to get around to talking about labour anti-Semitism, but it's exactly the same. Yeah, it's it's kind of is the idea, isn't it, of of the enemy within infiltrating? It's it's the same. You know, there's so many parallels with the protocols of the Elders of Zion. I mean, if we look at we look at when that all kicked off and when that started, they just had like a massive influenza influenza outbreak. You were having Jewish people blamed for simultaneously capitalism and communism because some of the Bolshevik leaders had Jewish ancestry. But the idea was that they were seen as like an other that if they if they assimilated in. They were seen to be sneaky. If they stayed on their in their own groups, they were seen to be outsiders. And I really feel like in about in about 2013, that's kind of the place that Muslims were holding in our society and in our media. And it deflected from. I mean, a conspiracy theories that are in the centre are re- they really exist to stop us from examining power, don't they? Because that's why they make the left look crazy when we examine power. They have to create a new villain because part of conspiracy theories is this. They don't, it's to stop you from looking at the actual nuance and the evidence involved. 
So it's so much easier for them if things are failing, you know, for the Tories to say, well, the reason we're failing is because we've got this this infiltrating group. But don't worry, we're trying to sort them out. But anything that's gone wrong, (laughs) don't blame us for the poverty. Like it's because Muslims are infiltrating, like Islamists are infiltrating us. Yeah, I mean, one of the things which I kind of got into following up from this is Michael Gove, obviously, like I say, really did not like that podcast, really hates the podcast and has put a lot of work into um, trying to take back the narrative. I think it's really interesting when the left gets slagged off, isn't it, for saying, oh, we we during the Corbyn period, we changed the narrative. And it's like, you don't want to change the narrative, you want to get power. And the right really understand that narratives are power. The whole mm-hmm. of this report that was done by Michael Gove's um, think tank, the Policy Exchange, is about controlling the narrative. So in Michael Gove's introduction, he says that the notion that events in Birmingham had nothing to do with extremism is as dangerous as it is false, since it conceals an ugly truth that too many prefer not to acknowledge. We have a problem with in Britain with Islamist ideology and its adherents, who seek to impose their intolerant values on Muslim communities, including children, always about children seen as violent. Through nonviolent means, it's very dodgy how he makes nonviolent means sound sinister, right, and dangerous, including the capture of important institutions such as schools. Um, And this is a well-organized campaign that seeks to undermine our counter-extremism work and prevent strategy. I think they're worried the prevent strategy will get questioned because of the damage it does, because of how racist it is. And this, they worry that this podcast will shift things. They actually do a really interesting and disturbing thing where they list all the tweets that got something like more than five retweets about this podcast. And they put the name of the person, the reference to the tweet and whether it was positive or negative because they are so disturbed at the fact that very few of the tweets were challenging this this podcast. My tweet's in there. I'm very proud of that, one of my tweets. So Yeah, well, we can talk about the reaction to this podcast, because as we say, yeah. it's, uh, it's obviously we've got both people involved. One of them who was from the area was sceptical of the story, being someone who, who lived in that area and didn't see it making sense. The other person being a total outsider from the US coming into it and just uh, hearing it from from the outside perspective and seeing it doesn't make sense that way and obviously when we when you listen to the podcast it doesn't make sense but when you look into anything about you know this letter or like as i said just the idea of like taking over schools it just doesn't like have any kind of like what is that going to achieve even if it was you know like as a very idea of a plot it's ridiculous the fact that the the letter, you know, all of the stuff about hoax, you know, the only way it makes sense is if you're inside of this kind of bubble, which you're being bombarded with information that don't even worry about whether the letter is a hoax or not. It also only makes sense if you're racist, because obviously there are Jewish schools, there are Christian schools. When you look at the description they give in this um evil policy exchange report document about Islamization. It sounds like exactly what any religious group would do, any identity group would do. So um, it says, for example, one of the purposes of Islamization is for Muslim students to be able to distinguish themselves from others and feel proud of this distinction and be anxious to preserve it. I mean, if you bring up your child as Christian, Jewish, Hindu, if you bring up your child as socialist, if you're not a child with any kind of identity, you're anxious for them to feel proud of that identity. And you you have to be really, really 
racist and to have a culture that is bitterly Islamophobic to present things which are entirely innocent for other groups to do and entirely defended for other groups to do and supported for other groups to do as a conspiracy, as a conspiracy to transform the world. Yeah, I I think that the idea of the culture. Sorry, Claudia, you want to go on? I'm just going to say, no, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in Christian schools and Church of England schools, I mean, I grew up atheist, although I'm a Christian now, and we would get told off we didn't pray. We had to pray and we were told if we didn't, then we were naughty or something. You know, we had to sing all the carols. We had to do all that. It's just so interesting, isn't it? It is right. You're right, Heather. It's completely about where the power lies. Because if you turn it around and you just say, you know, this is a majority Muslim area. This is their culture. You know, but suddenly that's a terrifying thing. But it's not scary when we do that in Church of England schools. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so it's it's a racist culture. Because I think you're right. You do have to be racist. But it's in a way that you wouldn't a lot of people you just wouldn't see yourself as racist because you're you're on the you see racism if you believe that you live in a in a society that is not racist and you see yourself as being very much part you know uh, of the mainstream of that society you see racism as something as a sort of abnormal outlier you know you see the right sometimes you see someone they say something that's racist and you go oh that's interesting this person's got racist views they're kind of on the fringes they're not like me but that, you know, that just totally dismisses this idea of the structural racism, this racism that is inbuilt into our just very understanding of, for example, how immigration might work and how, how you might have um, a school, particularly school where you have, where in the UK, traditionally you have uh, religion plays a part in the school and just the assumption that that religion is going to be Christianity. And if it isn't, then that's, sub- that's suspect, right? Yeah. Even when 97% of the students are Muslim. Yeah, I mean, one of the things which is taken as evidence of radicalization is that a couple of kids said that a teacher said they should pray to them. It wasn't even part of the culture of the school, as it was in your case, but there were instances mm-hmm. of it. And this was seen as huge evidence for, for this um, conspiracy. It is like, it is really disturbing. And I think I hadn't really thought, this podcast probably made me think more about how ingrained Islamophobia is in our culture than anything else. Um, yeah, I mean, it made, it made me reflect as well. I mean, I, you know, I think we all like to think that we're not Islamophobic, but it really does make you think, doesn't it, about what you've taken. The the centre like to see themselves so rational and so reasonable, and, and we forget that the thing that is supposed to be so reasonable is only the middle point between two positions at any time. They have to be forced to move. So... That didn't make sense. Why is it? The thing is, the centre is not <laughs> the middle point. The centre. Mm. We talked about this in our. We did a rundown yeah. of the top ten centrist meltdowns of the mm-hmm. year. And one of the things which we found out through that, it wasn't entirely joking. It was trying to do a bit of analysis. Is that the right and the centre pretty much converged? This is this is a centrist yes. conspiracy, but this is also a far right conspiracy. Um, it very much supports that kind of political position about about Islam, and and so to me, there's no difference. And and the way they present the left in the report is really interesting and disturbing. Um, so I'm just going to read a tiny bit about the way they present the, the left. I can find it. Um, okay, of all the relationships that Islamist organisations have nurtured in Western liberal democracies, it is perhaps that with sections of the far left. I'm getting feedback. You should be able to hear yourself a bit, yeah. No, but I'm not. I'm getting like a weird sound in my ears. Oh, 
Okay. Huh? Should I not worry about it? I won't worry about it. It's gone. Okay. <laughs> of all the relationships that Islamist organizations have nurtured in Western liberal democracies, it's perhaps that with sections the far left, which gives the best rate of return for what can only be described as a minimal investment. The revolutionary left, in particular, asked few, if any, hard questions of Islamist actors, whilst appearing happy to replicate arguments about Islamophobia in virtually every arena they are raised. So the representation of the left here is as people who are just um, tricked by Islamist organizations. They are nurturing relationships with us, um, deceiving us. They're benefiting from it. They're getting a rate of return. They put very little effort in, they get loads back from us. And it's, it's, it's a horrific representation of both the left and of Muslim organizations. They don't talk about Muslim organizations as much as they seem to talk about Islamist organizations. So all these organizations are somehow in this conspiracy and that labeling of them does that. Um, I found just just something I found um, when I was when I was researching this, something that uh, the report claimed to find in the school was a terrorist video, like a recruitment terrorist video. Um, and it turns out that it was actually part of a BBC documentary and it was being used to uh, to be an instruction on anti-crime and prevention. And it had actually been recommended by the police department themselves. That was then used to, it was just insane. You know, I, I couldn't believe how bad this was. I did some extra research for this. And it's just completely ridiculous, isn't it? I wouldn't have believed how ridiculous it was until living through the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party. But yeah, the idea that you have an investigation into something where there's no evidence to begin with and basically there's huge political pressure to justify having the investigation. Whatever you find, whatever information, you find a, a CD that's got a BBC documentary on it, you try and link it. You try and link anything that's there. And and you see that with the anti-Semitism thing with, with, uh, with Corbyn. You know, all of the stuff that came out about Corbyn were all stuff that had been on public record for years. It was all just sort of part of what he did as a left-wing MP, as a sort of ambassador for the left wing of the Labour Party and for sort of left wing international politics. And then just anything that he ever went to or did was then just sort of um, presented, you know, whether it was in in the way that it was framed or in the way that it, it was a part, they take one part of something he said and leave out the other. Whatever, how they did it, they would frame it as so this sort of building up of this life of, of extreme anti-Semitism that he'd been living. You know, despite being a sort of well-liked Labour MP for decades, you know, completely under the radar of like all of the right-wing press, which you think would be totally all over that, but weren't apparently. Anyway, yeah, so I, I wasn't so surprised, um, but it's depressing nonetheless. How are we doing for time? I don't know. Uh, it's 3.30-ish, so... We didn't start until about after 2.30. Yeah, we started late. Yes, yeah, so we're not on an hour yet. All right, I so this can be a, this can be a short one if if we want, but I think it might be interesting to talk a little bit more about the anti-Semitism thing because they do seem to be be coming from very similar places. Um, in the sense that both <laughs> I was going to say a particular TV presenter's name, but I won't. Don't. <laughs> um, I, I you meant John Noakes, right? Yeah, I don't even know who that is, but yeah, that his name came into my head for some reason. He used to present Blue Peter. Back in the day, who, who did he? Uh, no, it was one with the dog. 
Shep. Oh, that's, oh, that's very old. Yeah, that's, that's my generation, Blue Peter. I'm very old. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they seem to be, be coming from similar places because, in a sense, both of those, um, both the, the scare around Islamization and the scare around um, anti-Semitism support the, the foreign policy agenda of the establishment, right? I mean, we we understand that a lot of the way in which anti-Semitism has been weaponized is to defend um, an ethno-state in Israel, an um, ethno-state which is very oppressive of Muslims. And we can see kind of similar dynamics playing out in India now in terms of the development of an ethno-state there and the way they're attacking particularly Muslims, but also other um, religious groups. And, and so... And there's talk about Hindu phobia in relation to that. So I think we're going to see that used very much to shore up a foreign policy agenda. So these um, systems, it's, it's it's not anti-racism, which is uniting these things. It's supporting a racist foreign policy agenda, which is uniting these things. And concern about anti-Semitism, concern about Islamophobia, concern about Hindu phobia are only um, engaged so far as they support that agenda and Islamophobia clearly attacking that and taking on that doesn't support that agenda. And that's why that is, I think, the main form of um one of the main forms of discrimination that we have globally now. Um Yeah, definitely. I mean, Heather, something you found as well, which I was I was looking into, was um from the Journal of Social Philosophy about conspiracy theories. And the idea that conspiracy theories themselves are quite neutral. The idea of a conspiracy, we, you know, you can get centrist conspiracy, conspiracy theories, far right, you know, um, and there's a few quotes that I just thought were really interesting. Um, the approach allows the term conspiracy theory when not appended by an evaluative quantifier can and should be used in a neutral sense. Any specific conspiracy theory may or may not be problematic, but this can only be known when it is evaluated. Um, it also says um, this approach assumes that there is no inherent general defect that a respectable theory needs to prove itself exempt from. Hence, any given conspiracy theory should be assessed on its particular merits. Because I, I tend to find that um, when people use the term conspiracy theory, you, you touched on this at the start, Heather, you know, it's implied that it's very uh, ridiculous, right? And it's it's stupid. But I, I kind of liked the argument that a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory, there's nothing wrong with a conspiracy theory. Uh, you, you, it depends how it stands up to scrutiny. And I think the difference is with the anti-Semitism accusations is that people who can see that it is a conspiracy, basically, and a smearing, it's not, it's not that we're working from a place of this is our position and we're going to try and fit the evidence to fit it. It's people who've often come at it from a perspective that's different. I mean, I came at it thinking, oh, I guess there must be quite a lot of anti-Semitism. Then I researched and I came to a different conclusion. So if you're if you're willing to research, that's not a conspiracy theory, is it? Like if it's backed up by evidence. No, it isn't. And I do find, yeah, a lot of people that talk about these things, they've done a lot more research. And even if they're wrong uh, in, in, in certain arguments, people that have looked into it, it's a lot more. E it's, it's so easy to take the mainstream centrist position on anything and do no research at all. Because you have this this the sort of this huge backing of like the you know like you talk you engage with people about the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party and they don't know anything about it right but they just assume that there was something there and they just sort of dismiss you not because of what you say not because of the evidence like did you know this did you know that 
they don't know any of that stuff, but they just assume like that they would know it if it was important. They assume that they they're informed, and like if it, if they haven't been told about it by the Guardian or the BBC, then like it can't be important for some reason, right? There's like this kind of ego thing. Well, I, I'm an informed person, so this clearly is not important information because I don't know it. Yeah, I mean, two of the podcasts I really like are um, really well researched, looking at a whole range of what gets dismissed as conspiracy theories and the evidence around them um, and what really goes on in the deep state. And so I'm going to just do a kind of plug for both of those. One is Ghost Stories for the End of the World, which I've mentioned before on here. And the other one is American Exception. They're both, yeah, both really worth um, uh, giving some money to, as is obviously our podcast. So there's Patreons for all of them. <laughs> Don't mention the Patreons of the other. But they, they're they really happy. They've got loads of money and they're really happy working for free. In fact, they've got so much money, they're trying to get rid of it. But we do <laughs> genuinely need your money. That's the difference. <laughs> Having said that, we have got a new sound. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, and we're making a video, which I'm against as well. But if you're watching the video, you can see that we've got these nice, snazzy microphones. We haven't listened to it back, obviously, because we're in the middle of recording it. But I'm hoping that this sound is being really good in this last hour. Imagine um, if none of it is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> don't say this. that. <laughs> I don't know what would be worse. Like, it would be worse if, like, we record an hour and the sound was just as shit as it always is. Or if we didn't record it at all, then there's still hope. But maybe one day we will record it. Schrodinger's podcast. <laughs> But anyway, um, if the sound isn't good this time, we will obviously continue to endeavour to ever yeah. improve. I'm just wondering which of those is the cat being dead and which of those is the cat being alive. In both, in both they're dead. <laughs> if a tree falls and no one's there to hear it fall, if the podcast is made and it's not recorded, did, did it, it ever happen? exist at all? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we're really, yeah, we need to end this now, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, one last thing I was going to oh, say. Yeah. If you're um, watching this on YouTube... Uh, we're going to have some questions from now on. Homework. Homework. Yes. No, no, we're going to do them on the show. So any question that you put in the chat, sorry, in the comments of this video, if you put, I was thinking, and then just put anything after that, a question, a statement, we will respond to it, whatever it is. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be an adequate response. I do like, I really enjoy responding to the comments. I have to say it's one of my fun things to do. So um, thanks to everyone who writes comments and I do try and answer them. Yeah, we do try. We, I mean, I, I read most of them and I, I do try and respond to as many as I, as I can, but, um, sometimes I just don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say sometimes the, the... the comments are not very nice and they hurt my feelings. And so I, I can't respond to them. But if you put anything <laughs> after I was thinking, if you write that and then you write something, I know that you want us to read it out in the next show. If we get loads, then we'll do it over a number of shows, but we will get through them all. Shall we wave? Yeah, because we made a video again. I forgot we were actually recording it, like on the video. <laughs>